Hi everyone and welcome to another edition of the Lion Trust Multi-Asset Podcast. I'm James Smith and as always I'm here with our Head of Multi-Asset, John Halsby. Hi there John. Hi yeah. Uh, it's been a little while since we've we've done one of these. I don't think we've done one since before summer. So I think we're just today we're going to um, look at some of the key issues at the moment. I think it's fair to say they haven't really changed since before summer. Um, John, we're going to start with the dreaded B word, Brexit. Um, I know you've been out and about on the road and you're getting a lot of questions from clients on Brexit, how you're how you're thinking about it, how you're positioning the portfolios. Um, I know we've said in some of the pieces we've written, it's hard to make any definitive statements with things still, even at this stage with a few days to go up in the air. What what can you say at the moment about how you're feeling about Brexit and 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 how how it, how are you how are you currently positioned? Yeah, I mean, uh, as you quite rightly say, I don't think it is driver, the key driver to our portfolios. I don't think uh, that uh, the Brexit situation is is that. I mean, Brexit as it stands today, uh, I still think that the market and indeed the public are, are seeking some certainty. You know, we're still at a stage where, you know, there may be a new deal that might be agreed. There may be no deal. Uh, there may be an extension or there may be an election. And those four things in any order can still can still happen. And but what we do see still in the markets and witnessed, you know, in the last few weeks as well, when, you know, the, um, the revised deal or revised offer has come come about between the UK and the EU, we see sterling strength. Uh, so uh, when there is a so-called softer Brexit, uh, we see sterling strength. And when there is a harder Brexit, we see sterling weakness. And then the other thing that's being played out in, uh, and we saw an extraordinary rally last last week, uh, or was it the week before last anyway, with um, basically mid-caps. So, so the so-called sort of domestic earnings play, when once again, you know, this new revised deal came along, uh, we saw some extraordinary outperformance of uh, mid-caps and some of the value stocks. So some of the stuff that uh, perhaps year-to-date was very much the darlings of the stock market, became the also runs in a in a pretty uh, quick manner, which actually leads me to another point, which is diversification. We always bang on about diversification. We bang on about the fact that we're diversified by investment style, you know, value versus growth, large cap versus small cap. And you can see the turnaround can happen so quickly in markets and trying to attempt to time that, well, you know, it seems to me pretty balmy. So therefore, that's why we have a balance and we are tilted towards value. So when we do see days where value does return, then, uh, you know, we do capture that. I know we've we, we've, we've said all along that we, we don't want to diminish Brexit as an issue because it obviously is taking up a, a huge amount of people's interest. But equally, the UK doesn't actually constitute a huge proportion of the global mar- global stock market or the global economy. So I think you've always said if you're looking at impacts there are there are lots of other things that are going to impact investment performance much more than brexit over the long term yeah precisely you know the the numbers we talk about is that uk equities of the msci world index a basket of global equities represent what is it four or five percent of the world and the economy the uk economy the fifth largest economy in the world but you know, once again, four or five percent of the global economy. So, if you're focusing just on the six and the four, then you know you're missing out on over ninety percent opportunity elsewhere. And 
as I said, that's why I firmly believe what's driving portfolios, which are global, which are diversified, is what's going on in the rest of the world. And for there, we have to look at uh, basically the global economy, the potential for it to continue to slow down or something worse, um, you know, even into a recession versus, uh, you know, what central banks are doing led by the Federal Reserve. We know there has been a U-turn this year. We've talked about that on this podcast before. You know, essentially, um, central banks are uh, are going back again to monetary policy, monetary stimulus, uh, you know, uh, with interest rates coming back down in the US. And QE, which potentially was going to be halting in Europe this time last year, is, is now continuing on. So, you know, I, I refer to this as a, as a tug of war. You know, there are several tug of wars going on. You could say Boris Johnson versus Westminster, uh, but the, uh, you know, Euro versus the UK. But the biggest tug of war for me is the central banks versus the global economy. You know, the slowdown there, which is obviously not being helped by any political geopolitical events the largest one being of course trade negotiations between the us and china um that brings on nicely to to the next thing i wanted to to talk about um again over the summer one of the things that was in the the press a lot was this question of an inverted yield curve in the us uh that sounds a fairly technical concept so first of all i was going to ask you to briefly explain what that means, and then draw out a couple of points on it. The first of which is uh, looking back over history, over 50 or 60 years, an inverted curve has, has been seen as a, a reasonably accurate predictor of recession. So first of all, if you could give us, give us an idea of what it means, what, what an inverted curve is, and then do you feel that because it's inverted this time, it automatically means we are staring recession in the face? Yeah, and I think there's a big difference between a predictor and a precursor, and I, I think uh, a lot of the commentary written about the inversion in the yield curve probably fo- follows the, uh, you know, in terms of uh, less less on prediction, more precursor. However, an inversion in the yield curve um, is very much where long-dated yields uh, are less than short-dated yields. So earlier on the year in March time, uh, there was an inversion in the yield curve, but uh, that inversion was uh, very much around very short-term debt, three-month debt, versus 10-year debt. But the classic inversion is one which is known as the 10s the and 2s, or the 2s and 10s, whichever way around you want, you want to call it. So you take 10-year debt, 10-year government debt, and here we're talking about the US because the inversion in the yield curve is very much um, you know, referred to in the US. It's the world's largest economy. So the 10-year Treasury yield fell below the two-year Treasury yield. And we saw that inversion, albeit for a, a few days, few weeks in that in that respect. And as you quite rightly say, history suggests that when you see that inversion, uh, it typically has been followed by a recession, uh, some sort of 12, 18 months, two years on uh, from that inversion in the yield curve. To be honest with you, I have no reason to believe otherwise in that respect where, where the economy is going. However, you know, um, you know, the most dangerous words, it's different this time uh, in markets uh, are rolled out. Uh, and it could be because uh, of um, the presidential election next year uh, with Trump obviously standing for a second term. You know, clearly he, don't, he doesn't want to go into that election with a weaker economy. So, 
you know there could be some stimulus there but equally the efforts of what's going on in terms of the central bank uh, monetary stimulus and now as you see that every single central bank uh, around the world is now trying to encourage um, their governments to do fiscal spending you know cut taxes public spending you know and uh, perhaps in the US there is little room for it but there is plenty of room for it in the in Europe and particularly in the UK I mean there's a very positive story for UK once we get Brexit out the way you know an election can come along you've already seen some of these pre-election promises from the Conservative Party in terms of spending on schools health you know public services in that way there is plenty of money to spend uh, public finances are in pretty good shape in the UK and believe it or not in, in, in Europe you know Germany is knocking on the door of a recession and uh, what they need to do is, is is spend and they need their government to deep uh, dig deep into their pockets and spend okay and the other the other question I wanted to focus on around this uh, inverted yield curve question is there's a there's a large portion I think up to about a third of um, of global bonds are currently negative yielding uh, I guess from, from a from a layman's perspective you you would you would look at that and think why as an investor what or why would I want to hold a negative yielding asset class um, when it comes to bonds uh, you you do still have some bonds in your portfolios can you explain what value you think bonds they they're not the whole bonds as an asset class isn't negative yielding parts of it are but could you explain why why you still see value in in bonds even though some parts of it are giving you a negative yield at the moment yeah i mean uh i mean that refers also to the sort of the inversion in in the in the yield curve as well in terms of you know perhaps the reason why the 10-year treasury has fallen in yield is because of the fact of as you said around about a third of government bonds are paying you a negative yield. So if you are a global bond investor, clearly you're going to look elsewhere around uh, around the world uh, in order to, to pick up some yield. You know, I think that bonds are in are in portfolios, and you know we've always been very clear about our diversified portfolios that bonds are in a portfolio not for capital growth. They're there for income. They're there for diversification against equities in the main. They provide some inflation protection as well. But uh, they're certainly not in, in the portfolio to provide um, uh, capital growth. You know, there for diversification of our equities. They've worked in the fourth quarter of last year when we saw equity weakness. Um, year to date, you know, bonds have done rather well. And so have equities, uh, which starts to question you know whether you know uh, bonds are right or or equities are right in terms of markets okay great um we'll finish off today with uh, i guess what's probably a, an unavoidable topic if we're talking about investment management the uh, the woodford question um i, I don't we're not, we're not going to go into the ins and outs of um of the situation too much detail now i know there was a a program on the BBC last night, which a lot of people will have watched and, and draw their own conclusions. But John, you you didn't hold Woodford's funds in your portfolios. Could you maybe give us a, give us a little bit of an insight into why you didn't hold them and how you feel that reflects your your um, your investment process and your your investment philosophy? I think the best way to answer that question is to talk about the way that we go about our fund selection. 
So we're looking to build diversified portfolios. So portfolios which are diversified by the asset class, by country and region, and by investment style. We touched upon that earlier on. We're also patient investors and looking for the long term, believing that you can get outsized returns from active managers over the long term, but there is no such thing as consistency of performance. We firmly believe in consistency of, of style and approach. So when taking that philosophy and looking for managers, we use what is called TMS. TMS stands for transparency, value for money, and suitability. So when we're looking for funds, the first thing we're looking for is suitability. So if we're looking for equity funds, uh, then we'll be looking for value versus growth, large cap versus small cap. So we would be looking perhaps for a value fund uh, which ticks all our boxes in terms of suitability. The second thing we'll be looking for is transparency from the underlying fund manager. That includes uh, regular visits and meetings with the managers, but also the underlying portfolios as well, so we can look at the holdings. And, you know, holdings are published on a six-monthly basis, so you can see that. When we've established that we uh, have a fund that we're comfortable with, with a manager who's been running the portfolio for a sufficient length of time, 10 years is a sort of rule of thumb for, for uh, Paul and I in, in picking funds, then we're looking for value for money. You know, are, are we getting something over, over the long term? If we don't get the transparency and we don't think it's value for money, we're not going to be invested in that fund. Uh, and, you know, uh, we typically have sold funds in the past because of that. I mean, one of the main reasons for selling a fund is actually style drift. So suitability being important. You know, that's suitability just like you know, clients investing in our range of target risk portfolios. That suitability has to be there on day one and it has to be ongoing. What we find sometimes, you know, style drift, manager may change, manager may leave. Also, um, funds become a victim of their own success. When a fund gets a lot larger, many, many times over the year do we see a fund change its spots to some extent because they can't be as small and nimble as, as before uh, and therefore become a different fund. Once again, we would refer that as style drift and therefore we wouldn't be investing. Okay, great. That's uh, that's great, John. Um, I think it's good to get your thoughts on these current issues. I think they're probably going to remain current issues for, for a few months to come. So oh, we'll, I, I certainly agree with that. I we'll, mean, you know, we're, we're doing presentations at the moment and someone said, you know, you know uh, you're going to do a presentation in November, December and I see that Brexit is still in your pack. You know, won't it be done and dusted? Well, that's wishful thinking. Yeah, I'm afraid it looks like it is. Um, so I'd just like to, to thank John for his time as ever. Um, thanks everybody for listening. We'll, uh, we'll be back soon. Thanks very much.